If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For him, I, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we uh, pause uh, to remember part of the way through this, this gathering time where we are meeting with you, that we are meeting with you, that you are here right now, and that in your word you are speaking to us. And so, Father, it's our prayer that you help us to hear, and that you draw us nearer to you, that you awaken us to the reality of who you are and who we are in Christ that more and more we might be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been uh, at this church for a while and you've heard me preach for a while, you might know that I like to draw illustrations from movies. And one of my favorite movies in terms of illustration is The Matrix. Not because it was cool, and it was cool, at least in the 1990s, 20 years ago. But because there's something about its plot line that I actually think really points to something that is going on in this world. It might seem a little far-fetched, but if you haven't seen the movie, um, the central plot is the idea that everyone, all of this world, the whole reality in the world of the Matrix that people are experiencing is a lie. People aren't actually experiencing the real world. They're all in one massive computer simulation called the Matrix. Meanwhile, their bodies are being you know, fueled for energy or something like that. But, but the idea is that everyone is in a lie, everyone is enslaved except for the small group of people who somehow have become illuminated. They have, they have come to understand what is true. 
and they have disconnected themselves from the matrix, and they are now experiencing a kind of freedom. And so in this movie, there really are two groups. There's a group of people who are in the matrix, who are living a lie, and, and some of them actually don't want to live anything else. The lie is simpler than kind of being exposed to the truth. And then there are this small minority group of people like the resistance who understand the way things really are and trying to resist the lies. There are those who are kind of inside the truth and there are the outsiders. And I do think there is something about this rather far-fetched, out-there idea that, that points to something that is true. And that is, we are living in a world that is held captive by a lie. It can take different forms. It can be, you know, a group of people who, who just believe God doesn't exist. Or at least if he does exist, he's not near. And if, at least if he is near, he is not central. Because the, the fundamental lie is that we are central. That each of us are at the center of our worlds. And that God is relatively irrelevant. It is a lie that is overwhelming. It is everywhere. And it is enslaving. It is what holds us captive to sin. To selfishness. And ultimately to death. In, in a sense, this world is in its own matrix. Now, what Colossians has told us is that the gospel, this, this message of what God has done in Jesus, has this unique power to break through the lie. That when someone becomes a Christian, the Spirit takes this truth and, and awakens us. Awakens us and helps us to suddenly see that the fog that we have been in, the lies that we have been believing, there's, this, this awakening is so profound, it is described as being born again. Now we are no longer the old self, we have become the new self, who are we with Jesus as we come to understand how God loves us, how, how we are helpless but Jesus has died for us. We are awakened and brought out of the lie. But yet, even as, as we who come to Christ are awakened, there are many, Scripture tells us, that do not come to understand this, right? And we know this. There are many who haven't heard about Jesus, or if they have heard about him, have, have just not taken hold of that. And, and so the result is there are, there are two groups in this world. There are those who are inside this truth, the ones who, who are in Christ, and there are outsiders. Uh, we see Paul using that exact language in our passage right here. Maybe you noticed it. It says, um, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. You know, we, you know, we've been talking the last few weeks about how in Christ, all these old dividing lines are no longer. Uh, ethnic dividing lines between different races doesn't matter. Um, economic dividing lines between those who are poor and those who are rich. It doesn't matter. Everything, all of us are one in Christ. Christ is what defines us. But there is one remaining dividing line in this world. It's the dividing line between those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ, who are outsiders. That's why Paul uses this language of outsiders. That is what divides all of humanity. And this world is still a world that is held captive to the lies. It is, in its majority, a world that is still held captive by the idea that God is not central. 
And we see it everywhere. Uh, we see it in the belief that if you have whatever spiritual beliefs you have, they should remain private. That, that your sexual desires are more central to who you are than your religious beliefs. Uh, by the belief that it is, it's more rational to put our hope in financial accounting and self-security and finances than it is to trust in the providence of God. That it is more appropriate to speak in terms of economic or scientific forces than to talk about God being at work in the world. We are in a world that is in the matrix where truth is removed. And the question that we ask as those who are on this side of the dividing line is, is, is what do we do? How, how do we conduct ourselves as those who have been rescued from the lie in a world that is held captive to this lie? How, how do we live how do we love the world around us? That's the question that Paul concludes the letter of Colossians to. This whole time he's been reminding us who we are in Christ, what has happened. And now you know, you, you'll notice there's, you know, the final verses are just kind of final greetings that Paul says, but I want to focus on the real final thing he goes before the greetings. These final words kind of exhorting, kind of calling in the Colossian church about how you need to live in a world that is held captive to a lie. And here's what Paul says. He says, for those of us who are now in Christ, you and I, we need to stay awake. We need to pray awake. And we need to live awake. We start with the instruction to, to stay awake. Uh, verse 2 says... Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that, that phrase, being watchful in it, could just as easily be translated, staying awake. Continue steadfastly in prayer, staying awake by it with thanksgiving. The implication being that one of the great dangers that you and I face in a world that is still held captive to this lie is that we will fall asleep. I saw, uh, I remember a movie, it's about three decades old, called Grand Canyon. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Again, it's an old movie, not terribly popular. But I remember distinctly, there was this one character. Uh, he was this movie producer who was famous for making lots of money on violent movies. And there was this thing that happened to him early in the movie where he got shot in the leg as someone was stealing his watch. And he speaks of having this epiphany. He, he, he says in this movie, at the end of this long torturous night, my head pounding in syncopation to my throbbing wound, there came a glorious, delicate dawn. And I knew I can't make these movies anymore. I can't make another piece of art that glorifies violence and bloodshed and brutality. He had been awakened to a reality. But you see, even as you're watching the movie, you, you imagine this can't last. This won't last. And over time, we see this guy slowly kind of forgetting. And by the end, he's back to the very same habits he had before. And he justifies it, saying, hey, this is a necessary thing to do. He, is, he has fallen asleep to what he once saw. Do you know what that's like? To, to have this moment where something becomes clear, and then over time, you become drowsy, and you kind of just forget it. Maybe it's... Something related to going overseas. I remember when I was in high school, I went on a missions trip to Dominica, which is this very impoverished Caribbean island. And I, I was struck by the poverty. And I remember coming home and, and just even being at a grocery store and looking around and realizing, we have so much. 
we take so much for granted. I felt kind of awakened to a reality. And maybe you've experienced something similar if you've traveled to Haiti and back, but maybe you also, like me, have experienced what happens next, that it's so easy to slowly just forget, to fall asleep to the reality to which you were awakened. And Scripture says, you and I, in a world that is held captive to a lie, as we've been awakened through Christ, this is a danger that we must face. There's a danger of falling asleep. Again and again, actually, in the New Testament, we see the same warning. Jesus says, stay awake because you don't know when the Lord is going to come. Decades later, Peter says, be sober-minded, staying awake because the devil prowls like a lion. Paul elsewhere in Romans says, stand firm and stay awake. Again and again we hear, stay awake, stay awake. And of course the implication is there is a real danger that you and I in this world will fall asleep to the gospel, to the change that has happened to you and to me. And don't you feel that? There's something... I was going to say soporific, and Jennifer would then mock me for using the word, you know, soporific, sleepy-making about the lives that we have. There's sleepy-making about the suburbs and the comfort and the patterns in which we exist. And we can forget who we really are and who God really is. There's also even something sleepy-making about when we are stressful and we have all sorts of things going on and there's anxieties and it pushes out of our mind who we really are and we fall asleep. We fall asleep to the reality that God is our Father, that Christ has redeemed us, and that we are His. And so Paul says, as those who are living in a world captivated by lies, as insiders in a world of outsiders, stay awake. And how do we stay awake? Well, Paul tells us the way that we stay awake is as we pray awake. Again, see that verse, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, staying awake by it. Remember, that's how we can translate being watchful in it. By the praying and by giving thanks, that is what enables you and me to stay awake. Now, I know at this point, um, it would be awfully easy for me to get you feeling really guilty. I mean, I just know that. You know, like, I, all I have to do is talk about prayer or evangelism, and we're talking about both today. And all of us go, oh, man, I'm, I stink at this. Because, because especially prayer, there is something, there's something about it where many of us just feel so defeated, right? I mean, I could talk about how you know, Martin Luther wakes up at 3 in the morning every morning, so should you. And all of us like, oh, yeah, it's true. But I want to suggest that we move beyond that, that guilt response, because I don't think actually it's that helpful for us. The, the motivation that Paul gives here is pray, continue steadfastly in prayer, because man, you and I need it. And I was a little league coach for a number of years, and if you've ever coached baseball, my guess is there's one thing you found yourself telling young kids learning to hit more than anything else. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Because if you don't watch the ball when it's coming, if you lift your head to see where it's going to go, you're just going to miss again and again. Now, let me tell you, if I'm instructing a kid, and later on, because they missed him, oh, I'm so terrible, I didn't keep my eye on the ball, I didn't keep my eye on the ball, and he's just feeling guilty and shame, that's not really that helpful, and that's certainly not what I'm wanting to, to, to cause in that person, right? 
what we're hoping is that if they didn't put their eye on the ball this time, next time, when they're up to the plate, they can. Because that's the only way they're ever going to hit. And there's something similar here. Paul is not saying, do this because God will be so angry with you if you don't. It's like, do this because this is what you need to do for your survival. Prayer isn't just a duty. It's a gift. I mean, quite literally, Christ died on the cross to open up the way so that we can come to the Father anytime we want. And he did that for us because he knows that's what we need to be able to stay awake. Because there's something distinctive about the practice of prayer that can, can disintegrate, can break through the lies and wake us up to the reality again. Think of what you do every time you're asking God for anything, for help or whatever. You're remembering a couple things. One, you're not in control. And it's not just a matter of fate that God himself is the one who's overseeing everything. And that breaks through the lie. And when you come as you're called to, in the name of Christ, being able to come with confidence because God invites you, you're, you're remembering again who you are. I'm a child. A child that the Father says, come to me anytime and ask. And you start living again into the reality of who you are. And when, as this verse tells us to do, you keep on doing it, giving thanks, you are again and again paying attention to how God is doing these things. How good he is. How, how gracious God is. Do you see how praying steadfastly wakes us up? You know, sometimes um, we feel so disconnected from God. And, and it could well be that at least part of it is because we're falling asleep. You know, if we forget to pray, it's not... The problem is not that now God is really going to show anger to us and he's going to make our life miserable because he's ticked at us. No, if we forget to pray, our problem is we start falling asleep and we stop being able to take comfort in the reality that we're forgiven. We, we stop being able to find joy in the fact that God loves us. We lose sight of reality and we become cold because we need prayer to stay awake. Now, I know the difficulty oftentimes is the reason we don't pray is because we're sleepy. I mean, quite literally sometimes. I mean, you know how it can be in the morning and you're trying to pray and you start and, and really you shouldn't have shut your eyes at that point because now like you're half awake, half asleep and it's frustrating and we're like, okay, well, that's the problem. But, but here's the thing. There's, there's, a, there's a spiral effect about this, right? When you and I, because we don't feel like praying, because it doesn't feel real to us, don't pray, then what happens? Things feel even less real. God feels even less real. We fall asleep even more. And so then we pray even less. And as we pray even less, we fall asleep even more. That's why Paul says continue steadfastly. Steadfastness means even in the, in the face of tiredness, even in the face of obstacles, hold on to praying, not because you'll feel so guilty if you don't, but because you and I need it. We need it to stay awake. And let me encourage you as we're thinking of prayer and as you're thinking about how do I continue steadfastly in prayer, not to think in just the model of the waking up early, 20 minutes on your own, you know, shedding your eyes. There are so many different ways we can speak to God. We can speak to God if we're in the car and there's a song that's a praise song that we just kind of sing to God. I say in the car because I would never do this in front of other people. Maybe you would. But I mean to just sing to God. Or, or maybe it's something really simple like in the moment of stress, God, 
please help me. Or maybe it's as you come together in, in a community group or discipleship group and you pray together. There's something strengthening about praying with others. There are so many different ways we can pray, but we need prayer to stay awake. We stay awake as we pray awake. So that's what Paul says, but then notice how he moves right from that to, to how it's going to shape you and me. That is, as, as we are awake to the reality of who we are in Christ, and as we are in a world where so many people are held captive to, to the lies, that is going to affect you and me. And, and specifically, it's going to affect us by, as we see those who don't know Christ, us feeling a longing and a desire for them to experience the grace of God that you and I have experienced. For them to be able to take hold of the glorious riches that are found in Jesus. I mean, how could it not move us in that way? Something absolutely extraordinary has happened. The God of the universe has come down and has set his sight upon a bunch of, of people who don't deserve it and he loves us and he has rescued us and he's given us an eternal hope and a new kingdom. How could we not want others to be able to experience that with us? This past week, our, um, uh, the Lane School, that's where Joel, our, all of our kids actually attend at one point. Joel was in fifth grade this year, and so he finally graduated, and there's kind of a ceremony. It's kind of like a graduation, but not really. And they have this uh, time where they're singing songs. Uh, they go through like the different years of the songs they sang from kindergarten through fifth grade. And, and the final song they sang, kind of like the fifth grade song, was What I Am by Will I Am. Maybe you've seen it. I think it was in Sesame Street, and you know, like it, it, it has these lines like, what I am is special, what I am is awesome, what I am is brave, and it's cute. But the thing that made me sad was especially that final line where it says something along the lines of, there's nothing I cannot achieve because in myself I believe. And I just found myself in that moment feeling really sad. Because these kids are about to face middle school and high school, and there's a ton of pressure they're going to face. College, entrance, friends committing suicide, worried about the future, and the message that we're telling them is it's all about you. You've got to just rely upon yourself and believe in yourself because that's your only hope. Is there any wonder that they're cracking under pressure? Don't you long for awesome kids like this, or, or for neighbors that you know, or for family members to know that they don't have to believe in themselves because they have Jesus. Because in him, they have everything. In him, their, their future is secure. Don't you long for that? And I think when we come to that feeling, that awareness, that, that longing, we sometimes don't know what to do. We, we know we can't just kind of like push people to take hold of it. We want to, but we're not sure what it looks like to help them to come to know Christ. And I think that's what Paul is writing right now. He's writing, he says, as you are awake, as you are looking at towards the outsiders, as you're feeling this longing, let me tell you, here's what you need to do. And really, he, he, he kind of identifies three things that we should do as we have this longing to see others know Christ. He says you need to pray, you need to love, and you need to be ready. I mean, we see him first saying that you need to pray. Even moving from first pray to stay awake 
then he specifically asks for a different kind of prayer. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Just think about this for a moment. This is probably the greatest evangelist that's ever lived on this world in terms of how many people came to Christ through him. And he is talking to a group of people he doesn't know and he's pleading, please pray. Please pray so that a door will be open for the word as we are continuing to do our work. Which shows that Paul realizes something that maybe we don't and that is that it is only going to be by God that any when it comes to hear the word of Christ. I remember hearing a, a mentor of mine who was in seminary uh, saying about this passage, we sometimes, especially with our can-do attitude, think that helping others come to Christ is just a matter of strategy. If, if we can just be really winsome, really kind, really delightful, really clever, that's the key. All we need to do is find the right technique. But that's just not the case. And he said, do you have any idea how tightly shut and firmly bolted people's hearts are to the word of God? Do you have any idea how thick the darkness is? The alienation is extreme. The hostility is intense. There is no way for the word of God to have any entrance in people's hearts apart from the power of God. And so Paul says, pray. See, the gospel is powerful. We've experienced the power of the gospel. It changes us, but the gospel can only have its effect when the spirit opens the door in people's hearts and enables them to hear it. I think you and I, any of us who have sought to share about our hope in Christ, we, we know that, don't we? Some of us, like me, have probably tried to kind of power our way through gospel sharing. If I can just kind of like force my way into it, then they'll hear the gospel and it'll be awesome. And it never, ever, ever works. Because you and I cannot, we cannot convert other people. We need to completely remove that from our minds. Someone comes to Christ when they come to Christ. And that's when the Spirit opens the door of their hearts and gives them an earnestness, a longing, an openness to hear the gospel. And so Paul says, here's where you, when you feel this longing, when you feel this desire, start with prayer. That is where the battle is largely fought. Are you praying? for other people, people that you know and love who do not know Christ. It might feel like you're praying forever and nothing happens. Keep praying. This is the battle. But he doesn't just say pray. He also moves to how we should love. In the next verse, or verse 5 specifically, it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And that last phrase, making the best use of the time, it implies that there's kind of an urgency, a need to be proactive. We have been given a limited period of time where we in this world are living amongst those who don't know Christ, and we shouldn't just let it pass away. We shouldn't just kind of go on autopilot. We should be intentional about using this well. And specifically, what we should be doing is seeking to be proactive in our love. 
He says, walk in wisdom. And, and that idea of wisdom in Colossians is not, it's not about being clever. It's not about being smart. Again and again in Colossians, wisdom is connected with Jesus. To walk in wisdom is to walk as those who belong to Christ. To walk as those who now are new, who are you with Jesus, who are shaped by what God has done. That's the wisdom that it's speaking of. We need, Paul says, to be distinctively Christ-like in the way we are towards outsiders. You know, one of the tragedies is that it's an easier thing for many of us, I think, to, to live as we're called to in our Christ-like way with other people who share our convictions and to kind of forget who we are with those who don't know Christ when it's with those who don't know Christ who most need to see Christ in us. Walk with wisdom in a Christ-like fashion. And specifically, that means showing the love of Christ to the world around us. We see that when he starts speaking about speech. After saying walk in wisdom, he says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Jesus elsewhere says you are the salt of the world. And I think seasoned with salt here is saying, let your conversation show that you are distinctively Christian. And here's what it looks like to be distinctively Christian. It looks like to be filled with grace. That is, as those who have experienced the grace of God, to show that grace towards those around us. To show the kindness of Jesus. The gentleness of Jesus. The generosity of Jesus. Think for a moment about those with whom you interact, uh, not just friends or neighbors, but maybe coworkers, or even people on the phone, businesses that you sometimes are working with. Is your conversation filled with grace? Paul says, as we're interacting with outsiders, we need to be proactive in prayer, and we need to be proactive in love. Make use of the time. How is it that we can serve the community around us? How is it that we can serve people who do not know Christ and show them the love of Jesus? We need to be proactive in prayer, proactive in love, and reactive, that is, being ready to share. I mean, that's how it finishes, doesn't it? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do you see the logic here? We've already said we cannot just kind of like break down the doors, but what Paul seems to be saying is if you are praying faithfully and you are proactively seeking to love, there will become opportunities. There will be times that people will notice something and they'll ask something and they'll be earnestly interested and in those moments, be ready. Be ready that you can speak personally and truthfully of the hope that you have in Christ. i got to say, I find this really helpful and wonderfully realistic. I think sometimes we talk about the, the guilt that we feel about evangelism. Part of the reason I think we feel this guilt is because we feel a burden to do something that is completely outside of our power to do. You and I cannot convert people. We cannot open the door for the word of God. That's God's work. But what you and I can do, and this, this focuses, here's where we should be focusing our energy. Focus our energy on praying, 
praying for those who don't know Christ. Focus our energy on loving. I mean, this is great because many of us say, I, I, I'm not a great speaker. I'm not a great evangelist. But you don't need to be. You need to pray. And you need to love. And you need to be ready. When people speak to you, that you need to be able to be ready to speak about the faith you have in Christ. That's what our calling is. That's what it looks like to live awake. We are in a world that is held captive to a lie, and we have been rescued from it. We have been given this enormous privilege of knowing Christ and having hope. And Paul says, don't lose that. Stay awake. Pray awake. Live awake. And, and, and the good news is that that is not something that we are called to do alone. It's something we're called to do together. There's this um, scene in Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you might be familiar with this story. It's kind of this allegory trying to describe the Christian life. And there's this one time where these two friends, Christian and Hopeful, who are seeking to walk towards the city of God, towards the very end of their lives. They're walking in one place, and, and we're told that they came to a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy. It's our country as well. And so what happens is, is Hopeful, you know, he is getting really tired. Um, and, and he says, I, I get, I'm getting so tired that I can scarcely hold up my eyes. Let us lie down here and take a nap. And, and Christian is alert in this moment to what's going on. And he, he basically says to Hopeful, we can't do this. There are some kinds of sleep that are good. This is not a good kind of sleep. This is a dangerous sleep. This is going to keep us from following through on our journey that we're called to do. And as, as Christian speaks to Hopeful, Hopeful is, is kind of brought to his senses and he realizes that he was getting caught under the spell of this moment. And, and here's what he says. He says, I acknowledge myself in fault. Had I been here alone, I would have, by sleeping, run the danger of death. But your company has been my mercy. I love that last line. Your company has been my mercy. Christian, because you're with me, God has given you to keep me awake. And I want to say, as we close our time in Colossians, God has given us each other to keep us awake. As we pray, pray for each other, pray with each other. As we live, live for each other, live with each other. Let us continue, as Hebrews says, to exhort one another until the day Christ, Christ returns so that we might stay awake. And even now, we have this opportunity to pray. I invite you even now to respond in a time of praying, whether it is confession, whether it is asking God for help, awakening us again to who God is and how we're loved in Christ Jesus. And then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. Let's pray silently.
Father God, you see the drowsiness of our hearts. You see how easy it is for us to forget what is most real and to believe more in the things that we can see, we can touch, to put more confidence in our own ability to do things, to have more fear about the events of the world and forget that you are our God and that we are in Christ. Father, forgive our faithlessness and please open our eyes and again awaken us to how richly you love us, to how certain our hope is in Christ Jesus, to how beautiful our future and how great our privilege is as being part of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Isaiah 44. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and you have been redeemed. Thanks be to God.